1: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, for an extra clickbaity thing, we're going to be talking about sex and sexuality in the USSR. And most of it is going to be coming from a book which was first published in 1981, and it's called In the Name of Love by Jan Zalit. Besides the point that I haven't done that, and like I said, it's going to be a clickbaity title, this whole sexuality thing in the USSR is culturally important. And here's why. Most heard thing about sex in the Soviet Union is the classical U nas niet, or there is no sex in the USSR. These words were blurted by a Soviet woman in the heat of an argument um, when the attitudes towards sex in the USSR and the USA were discussed during one of the first American-Soviet TV connections in the times of the Perestroika. Since that moment, this phrase was used as a popular formula for kind of marking the attitude of sex in all communistic and post-Soviet states, suggesting that the generations of Soviet people have grown up under the slogan, there is no sex in the USSR. But that is kind of a wrong attitude here. This later if you if you like would listen to some of our radio programs at the time or newspapers or even just the Gorby who also managed to comment on this at one point' later when this woman was asked to explain her views on this she added well yeah we have no sex here we just make love so the sentence is more of a mimetic phrase than a thing and a social commentary of the whole attitude about this <laughs> of course it made into the political jokes like Soviet paradox we have no sex but somehow the kids are still born how well by party orders of course. Seriously, though, this um, In the Name of Love book is a cultural phenomenon here, being the first of such books published in the Soviet Union. It happened over here in our own Latvian SSR as an experiment, as the Soviets liked to use our Baltic countries as testing grounds for various policies. And as the sexual revolution had happened in the West, and as it was pretty popular here as well, the authorities at hand decided that it's an issue that needs to be addressed. And as with everything concerning sexuality, it was also a matter of power and control. As this book was given as a gift from the state to all the new Levads in the Latvian SSR, and people were actually expected to read that. And as it was the first book that actually, you know, openly talked about sex and sexuality, even with its limited constraints, a lot of people, you know, have it in their homes still. It became the first time when something like that was even allowed in the Soviet era. Which makes it a very psychological physiological and super weird book, really. It has deep ideological connections to the Soviet mentality and everything, but it also reminds you car repair manuals at some points. Seriously, it has graphs about the intensity of arousal and orgasm during a sexual act by minutes for men and women, and also it has a chart about the moisture of the womb and the basal temperature in relation to the menstrual cycle, and also a very detailed chart about the physiological changes in the brain and their psychological effects during the various stages of dating, and of course, of course, it also has a chart which shows the proper way of going through the various stages of dating. Because if you Soviet citizens are about to get each other off, then you must do it the proper party way. Other options are bad. But yeah, those are the technical aspects, and frankly, as weird as they are, they're actually less important than the political message here. Now, later, Jan Zalit, this, uh, he's a professional medic, after all, the author of the book, would state that he just had to include political stuff in the book, and that censorship went over it completely. The second edition of the book also had some erotic pictures in it, you know, for artsy reasons, and that was almost banned, and caused an even more massive scandal, but the Soviet authorities put a lot of censorship there, otherwise it just wouldn't get published. That's why Jan Zalid had to write about the <clears throat> wrong types of sexuality from the official Soviet state perspective, because otherwise, yeah, it just wouldn't get published at all. And uh, with this book already, he was balancing on the edge here. See, just because the authorities decided that such a book was a necessity, they didn't really had to like it, nor they did. Literally broke new ground. But in the original edition, which I'm using for this show, there's also a ton about the ethical and moral aspects of proper Soviet sexuality. Obviously, they had to be in. And I'll quote from the book itself so that you understand what I'm talking about and why this Soviet sexuality book is so fascinating. Quote, The extremists of the capitalist sexual revolution, its supporters, want to introduce pornography in our land, in some cases, inducing our teens on photographing and filming various unnatural sexual acts. The dialectics of love because obviously in the USSR everything was subordinate to Marxist dialectics, without question. So the dialectics of love clearly prove that in such a case, these teens shall never be able to truly love as humans. They will not be able to escape the vicious cycle of the so-called free love. As we all know that only true, harmonical love is the brightest and best quality of a person living in the communist society. A person who loves is already one step closer to the society of the future. And then the book quotes a Soviet pedagogue, Sukhomlinsky. quote, If you want your student to understand and feel the great morally political beauty of communism, make him understand and guard the beauty of his intimate feelings. Without purity in intimacy, there can be no purity in the civic duty towards the state. So you can obviously see how this book had to work. It does contain quite a bit of useful psychological stuff. The author is competent and it's not all technical car manual little stuff or Soviet propaganda about sex. There are some useful things there, but all of this all of this is there, and um, is there a lot? Probably the most controversial stuff, by the way, for the modern reader would be obviously how minorities, as they're called deviations, are treated in the book. Oh yeah, and don't think that it's just about the uh, LGBTQ people, although obviously they were extremely oppressed in the USSR, and I'll get to that. But for one, what is the deviation in this book, well, obviously, bite. not as serious as homosexuality, it's just strange for the modern ears. If you like kinky leather stuff, that's abnormal. Roleplay, that's also abnormal. Or, you know, literally anything that isn't the proper communist sex for which the instructions are given in the technical part of the book. I mean, the instructions are vague and weird, but they're there. Oh, yeah, and this proper communist sex doesn't involve a mm, a lot of um, variations, so to speak. Oh, yeah, and by the way, if you're a married man, but your wife happens to be older than you... Then, well, tough luck. According to Soviet science, your marriage is also borderline abnormal. Quote, such relationships shouldn't be encouraged and are less likely to result in proper companionship, as normally the husband should be multiple years older than his wife. However, they kind of let it slip for just a bit, because in this case author states that this isn't dogmatic, of course, and you shouldn't automatically judge such couples in a very condescending manner. We, after all, know quite a few happy marriages where the partners are of the same age or when the wife should be a couple of years older, and they still work. That doesn't mean that they're still considered right or normal, but if you happen to be the same age as your wife, or if your wife's a bit older than you, then, uh, well, you're on the uh, (laughs) not-quite-normal-but-we-like-you-you-little-weirdos. Kind of strange, isn't it? The whole attitude toward what is and what isn't normal. Color obviously, like I mentioned just now, and uh, as this is the time where to do it, obviously it were the gay and trans people who really were persecuted the most in the Soviet era. Because according to the Soviet powers, USSR, government, uh, their immoral actions just were not compatible with the communist ideology. So let's talk about these guys before we get back to the book. So to talk about this, we have to go back in time a bit. As I have mentioned in my Criminal Code episode, in the Soviet Union, male homosexuality was a criminal crime. For women, however, that was considered a mental illness. Starting from 1934, 1st of April, by the way, in the Soviet Union, you could get up to five years in prison. To not go to prison, people actually tried to hide their orientation a lot, you know, stay closeted. Because, hey, prison. Like uh, our our famous guy from Riga, the genius of cinema, Sergei Eisenstein, agreed uh, to a false marriage, who really just benefited him, although his wife, Pera, she wanted to protect her friend from rumors, and she hoped that the relationship would grow in a marriage. However, they never lived together. During the Stalin's era, there was an unwritten law uh, enforced by Stalin himself to even mention any homosexuality in the official documents. This subject was discussed in uh, the documentation of the Secret Service and very, very rarely in the higher-ups of the party, which was just intended for a very narrow readership. Yeah, Soviet reality, Soviet Latvia reality especially. Uh, For example, after the second Soviet occupation in 1945, The USSR Attorney General of the uh, Leningrad Front and the Mayor of the Train Forces, Krivichkov writes a letter to the Latvian Communist Party Central Committee First Secretary Jan Skonberzinc. 4th of April 1945, he writes that, quote, (coughs) In Riga, there has been discovered a union of pederasts with more than 30 to 40 people. We have uh, gathered and arrested 13 of them. Eight of them have been given to the courts. Five shall get fired, end quote. Interestingly enough, that in this uh, court statistics about 1945-1946, these numbers do not appear at all, which shows that during the Stalinist era, the mm-hmm. um, control, punishment, and oversight of uh, homosexual people was basically what the KGB did. That was their competency. The homosexuals were sent to gulags. Many people who weren't uh, homosexuals actually you know, witnessed a lot of a lot of homosexual stuff going on in gulags, and well, quite a few of them also got raped. And you'll never probably know how many rapes, both homosexual and not, will actually be happening in um, those gulags. Stalin's era uh, just deleted every record of it, didn't write it down, and we know nothing of that sort of thing. During the Khrushchev era, millions of the prisoners were freed and returned to society. With the amnesties and people returning from those terrible, terrible camps, uh, which they had survived and being mentally broken by this point, that was followed by a crime increase wave. During this point, the Stalinist law against homosexuality was renewed. In 1958, a secret Communist Party of the Russian Federation's Ministry of Interior law was uh, published. It was the bill about muželovstvo, fighting against this muželovstvo, as they called it. Apparently, uh, the powers that be at that point thought that this <clears throat> plague, as they called it, of some homosexuality shall be released in society together with the prisoners. And yeah, we still don't know the full text of this decree, because these archives of the internal ministry of the Soviet Union from 1950s are still considered top secret. After this amnesty on this return from gulags in Soviet Russia, the court cases about being in a homosexual relationship was... Crazily increased, And to give you some data, in 20 years from 1961 to 1981, and that doesn't relate to all of the Soviet Union, this is just about the Russian part of the Soviet Union, 14,695 men were just arrested and judged and found guilty. Even in uh, Latvian SSR, which isn't involved there, it also just terribly increased, because from 1945 until 1960, only 34 people were judged for homosexuality, but in the time from 1961 up until 1981, it was 268 men. And even though in the 6th of January 1961... Latvian SSR, higher council, took their bill into order and power about the usage of Latvian SSR criminal code, and they replaced the Russian SSR criminal code with their own. However, uh, the whole attitude towards homosexuals didn't change. For example, in the new criminal code... Uh, 124th uh, article, part 1, about uh, voluntary intimacy acts between uh, adult males that would land you into in, in prison up to five years. Part 2 of this same article, 124, it was about homosexual acts if they have been committed with violence or with the threats of violence or using the helplessness of the person who's suffering from these acts or a state of dependency and also if they've been committed with minors. That could land you from three to eight years in prison. Interestingly enough, this 124th um, act of this criminal law criminalized not every possible way of intimacy between men, but only anal sex. Seriously. Both parties were also punished and, you know, judged. Other kind of, you know, ways of intimacy between men, that was kind of qualified as hooliganism or public indecency. For example, if you were caught masturbating in a public bathroom, you also would get punished. Because apparently Riga-Kiro district courts sentenced someone who had been masturbating in the basement of the cafe 13 chairs uh, 300 rubles of fine. Which is a lot for that point. Also, you know, everyone tried to fire homosexuals, all the collectives and everything, and um, people were often forced to write something to their bosses if the, <clears throat> if the worker has stepped over the Soviet morality. And yeah, there was literally no point going to court or whatever, because you'd probably get fired anyways, or worse. So, you know, in these cases, everyone who was working and when it had to happen in such a situation, if someone found out that you were gay, you'd be forced to quit under your own volition. Obviously, they really had no places of meeting, so they just met up in public spots. The famous cafe in the ear of God, which was built in uh, the cathedral, again, from one of my earlier episodes, if you remember that one, that was a kind of a popular place where, apparently, homosexual men could meet each other and uh, get a bit of privacy. And then there were the public baths, you know, saunas. And they're still popular here, but if you remember that Soviet Union and still modern Russia has conscription. So, uh, the soldiers who were conscripts, they were taken to these public baths in Thursdays. Other days were for those who were just on their own, the civilians. And apparently, in these baths, and in one of them at least, there was a kind of a stash of firewood, where gays would hide three rubles, which they would then pay to the soldiers for, you know, sexual work <clears throat> but yeah where could they they hide the money when they were totally naked so they stuffed in their 3 ruble banknotes in this pile of firewood and sometimes they were hiding them in such a way that you know when the time to pay was up and they just couldn't find it and sometimes if you know you would find your partner you'd like him and you know if you wanted to build a relationship with them then you know you you would take him to your home but apparently as i was told that was very risky cuz you know other other of his guys if they noticed something They could rob you or beat you up. So people were really sneaky about this and knowing the general paranoia of of everything being reported in the Soviet Union, you have to kind of understand that for these sexual minorities it was even harder than for the rest of us here.
0: Hey guys, Annette here. Hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a new Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
1: Then the early 80s hit, and this book came out. This was the main introduction to, you know, academic sexual stuff to uh, a lot of Soviet citizens. And this book, obviously, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it went through a lot of Soviet censorship. This book declares homosexuality as a result of wrong sexual education and a deviation that has been caused by it, which should be treated, because apparently because of homosexuality, the birth rates go down, pornography gets spread more, and crime increases. And yeah, obviously the Soviet Union by this point in the 80s, when Andropov was still in power, they did the forcible... Cures from homosexuality. Every patient patient was put into a, a harsh regime psychiatric clinics. Now I know that this happened elsewhere in the Soviet Union, but uh, how that happened in Latvia and in SSR, I have no clue really. I did some research and couldn't find it. However, there is evidence that during the Soviet era, Latvian doctors too practiced some <clears throat> correction of the sexual orientation after the personal demands of people. Because, like I said, everyone just found out about their own sexuality from this book, which you would steal to your parents and you would read, and uh, a lot of things just went haywire and unthinkable for today. For example, one of the examples given here is that Mr. Jan Zali this allegedly used hypnosis to treat a man and to change his sexual orientation from homosexual to heterosexual. We have access to various interviews with uh, homosexual Latvians from that era, uh, written by Rita Rudoshe. It's a collection of interviews called um, Underground Otherness. Because of this book by Jan Zalids, because like I said, that was the only thing you could read, a lot of teenagers understood their feelings and they felt them as some sort of curable pathology. For example, there's a homosexual pastor here in the Anglican Church, Maris Sans, and He's one of the people who's speaking about his studies there. He has the 11th study, To Be Alive. He was afraid that the homosexual orientation won't allow him to live his dream, to actually live a happy life and have a family. So he went to doctors for seances of hypnosis to cure himself from homosexuality. At that point, he also started looking for God, because he thought he was totally not normal and he wanted to kill himself. His plan suicide didn't happen just because of some random accident, but uh, Homosexual suicide rates were just insanely huge in the Soviet era, as you could probably imagine One of the loudest cases at that point was uh, a Latvian university student Whose name isn't mentioned there, we just know him as V He basically uh, just jumped into the river Daugava He was uh, singing very well, apparently but his voice was very clearly feminine, and, you know, because of his manners and that, he was called a pederast all the time. Obviously, it's, it's very impolite to call people that way in, in these days, but at that point, it was totally normal and okay. Also, there is a there was a restaurant, Yurmala, in the Hotel Yurmala, and they had a singer named Alexander, which was just beaten to death in Russia. Because, yeah, there were KGB-organized beatings up and uh, dealings with these minorities. Mostly, these attacks were committed by the so-called remontniks, or fixers. Yeah, and they uh, often like threw people in canals after beating them up. Nice KGB-organized violence against people. And also, this hatred towards sexual minorities was influenced uh, in the press as well. Like the main sexopathologist of the Latvian SSR, the health ministry, Eduards Aganovs, in the magazine Liesma, or The Flame, in 1988, which is like completely in the age of perestroika, when just about to get independence, but this still is going on, he uh, there writes about male homosexuality as a mm, risky and threatening practice, which is apparently very popular among the culture workers. And another sexopathologist, Mirza uh, when she speaks about uh, lesbian people in the interview the same journal Flame in 1989, even the year after that, is uh, extremely negative. She, by the way, and this is not just about homosexuality even, uh, she writes, <clears throat> a woman that has been correctly raised, in the very worst case, could come to masturbation, but never, never to becoming homosexual. And then she mentions that even though 25% of lesbians have tried to commit suicide, and in three percent of these cases it has been lethal, most lesbians do not want to treat themselves because they believe that it doesn't interrupt their lives. So yeah, the USSR powers problematized and like uh, worked with homosexuality in a, kind of an extremely, extremely scary aspect and. Uh, Another thing why I want to talk about this, see, in the late 80s, uh, AIDS, HIV, was spreading around in the Soviet Union, and, uh, yeah, homosexuals were seen as the main people who are, like, spreading this illness on purpose, no less. At the same time, by the way, uh, contraception was kinda hard to get by, because according to official statistics, as at the late 80s, everything was on cards. And for a married couple, your yearly quota of condoms were four condoms per year. Four, okay? Uh, Of course, you could buy buy more in the black market and whatnot, but imagine that you get your nice little card, and you're a couple, and you can just buy four condoms per year. Excellent. And at the same time, how the KGB treated minorities, like I mentioned in the, the KGB episode, yeah, they would try to find compromising materials about you. So, though obviously, they had a register uh, of the homosexuals and they also blackmailed them. A historian, in writes that there was a certain KGB criminal investigation department who was responsible for this question. There were special kind of offices in the militia structures in the KGB where actually, you know, they, their only job was to collect and make the database of the homosexual people and, uh, you know, organize these files. And very often the homosexual people whom Militia or KGB threatened with uh, criminal persecution for these voluntary sexual acts of other men, yeah, they were bribed and used as reporters. And that's one of the things that right now we're going to be uh, opening our KGB annals and all the documentation here in Latvia, because we haven't done it like they did in East Germany, but if you think about it, if you're about to go to prison for five years and you're being blackmailed and threatened with you and your, your loved ones being persecuted a lot, that's a complex issue. And the KGB archives, at least here in Latvia, they make no difference between people who went voluntarily and, you know, denounced their neighbor to get an apartment and to people who are just literally persecuted and forced to work with them. Again, another complex issue, but I guess I'll get to that another day. A lot of these homosexually-oriented people also agreed working with the KGB because that's how they ensured that their sexual desires were fulfilled and, you know, avoided public humiliation in prison. And about that, their sexual desires, yeah, KGB had both kind of the whip and the carrot. And sometimes we we have reports that KGB actually needed homosexual men in the passive roles for some of their assignments. There is an agent called Victor, uh, who's in an interview given to this journalist in this storybook, states that there were many operative assignments and the desires of the clients. I was brought in into a special room where there was a shower, they left a can of Vaseline, and, you know, I could test out everything in my own pace. There were dildos of various sizes there. A lot of gadgets, too. From all of these gadgets, I liked one stationary one. They had added to a dildo on a chair and you could sit on it. And all of this, all of this, because homosexual people, like I mentioned in KGB episode, were among the largest group which were persecuted for there. Because, you know, it was a crime to do that, and KGB could offer you some help and safe haven. So they were forced to work with them. And another diary uh, from a gay person, Kaspar Alexander Irbe, an entry there from 8th of November, 1970. But what's written there is that mm, over the street stood a car with an army covering Militia used them too. I understood that in the mausoleum, in the bathroom that is, from the kind of the big cathedral uh, God's Ear thing, they had a trap to capturing homosexuals. In the bathroom next to St. John's Church, we saw two young militia members going in and standing at the doors for some time. In these acts, there's a huge chance for them to bribe people or to force people to give them money. In fact, as far as I know, then there are people who do this, and they're also from the KGB, and they work with the criminal elements in organized crime to acquire resources that way. So yeah, there were two file bases for the control of homosexual people in the Latin SSR. One was held up by the Republican Skin and uh, Sexually Transmissive Disease Dispenser, and second one was the KGB. How did you get into this file base for being a homosexual? Well, in the SDS hospital, they informed the organs of Interior Ministry about the potentially ill people. Milizzi also gathered this information, and they informed about this their agents and <clears throat> voluntary orders of peace. So they together with the operative group, fully armed, went on raids among the meeting places of the homosexual people, And, of course, the attorney general was looking all over this. There was technically a stationary location, kind of an asylum, with a special regime, which was a prison, basically, who had its own operative group in catching the ill people so that they could be forcibly um, investigated and cured. This whole forcible sex treatment hospital was under the Riga Health Defense Department and was located in Riga, Moscow Street 241. So yeah, it wasn't an easy time really. So yeah, but turning back to more general stuff, um, when I first read this book when I was like 10 or 12 I suppose, the age when you start liking girls, you, you find this book in your parents' bookshelf and then you read it and it's kind of sneaky and has uh, all the stuff and then you just focus on psychology and miss out on all the censor-added things really. When I started this episode, I thought it was going to be a funny quip about how technical this is. Like, this is essentially, in many ways, a uh, machine repair book just for sex. And it also speaks about, you know, it has some good information. Like I said, it speaks volumes about how love is important and how uh, your psychological reaction to your partner is extremely valuable and how that leads to successful relationships and successful sex life. However, when I reread the book for this episode... I noticed that there's way less funny stuff than I thought had been put in there. Honestly, uh, a lot of the things that he considers normal are the rules, and everything outside these rules is pretty bad. For one, uh, he's definitely carrying out the very European notion of the fact that you should always take very extreme gender roles for the happiness and in the way that if you ever, ever allow your partner to pay for you as a man, then uh, you are committing a serious crime and that will hurt your sex life. Yeah, that's that's a thing here too. Secondly, he just writes all about how the perfect age for marrying is and, and how these moral relationships should be guided. And honestly, a lot of this is explanatory uh, because Soviet censorship and he himself, uh, Mr. Zali, this spoke about that, well, it was the first book of its kind in the Soviet Union and that how he had to really obey the Soviet censorship laws, but still the, the whole thing is damning. It's just super strange when all the book also containing a lot of stories from uh, failed relationships and failed marriages and how, according to this book, the only proper way how to do it is the one that agrees with communist mentality and this collectivism. There are a bunch of address lists posted in there, um, for marriage counseling, but one of the lines that struck me really hard is that you should first go to your uh, local party officer and party leader uh, before you go to any couples counseling too in this, in this one and that how one should always strive to be himself, but temper it with a normalcy, so that all the relationships could be successful. It's kinda of weird, and unexpected really, cause yeah, I just was about to make a bunch of silly jokes about how this book has all the technical stuff, but in a way, it defines what is normal and what is not in your human-personal relationship, and represents in a way, even though it came out in the 80s, for me, personally, it represents some sort of a super strange totalitarianism, in a way. It's kind of like Foucault's Panopticon, where uh, this book, although it gives information to people, are by the way, everyone knows that sex is happening and things are going on, but it presumes that people wouldn't know, you know anything about the physiology of their partner, which is kind of strange in these days, but hey... And so I thought it was a bit different, because there weren't many resources about this. And like I said, this was the first book of its kind. However, the, the very fact that it defines normalcy as... It reveals one thing, how, how this book led many people to think that whatever they liked was not normal. And uh, how we have this ingrained in our culture here, that this definition of normalcy. And I can see how this has, you know, led to a lot of impacts here. Sure, the book promotes strong family values... But it does so for the very wrong reasons, and uh, what our family values are. It's so weird, in a way, that uh, it's you know, kind of hard to comprehend for me, because if you want want to build a strong family, it should be built upon respect, while this book just enforces the fact that, hey, I'm a podcaster, and, uh, well, in the end, uh, if I intend to go big at some point, and I hope that I will, hey, guess who's going to be mostly doing podcast work and taking care of the kids? Yeah, obviously, and apparently that makes me uh, less of a man according to this book at at the very least. But this whole idea that the state can publish a book telling you what is normal and what is not, including in your private life, that is a direct form of totalitarianism. And even though though this book was progressive for its era, you can really feel the distortions caused by this pro-Soviet ideology and by how Things get defined as normal, not even talking about the homosexual people and minorities here. If you fap to porn, not normal. Pornography of any kind, even erotica, not normal and wrong. Um, All sorts of, you know, if you like anything that is basically not just the standard missionary position, Mm, wrong. And at the same time, due to this uh, lack of contraception in the Soviet era, yeah, they also just speak about following the calendar as a safe method of contraception. Then again, like I said, I don't want to be completely bashing of this book, because it speaks a lot about how you should try to be the best that you can be for your partner, and how all these things, you know, are important. But in a long while, I haven't been so, so stunned by the own episode that I'm making with the fact that I expected this to be a funny laughter show, but turns out it isn't. If you reread something from like a wiser perspective, then you can find out that sometimes books that are just there and are the prime source are influential. It's kind of like when Stalin did his uh, reading reform in the Soviet Union, but he taught people how to read by using Soviet propaganda, and that influenced their thinking a lot. And it makes sense, too. It makes sense that this book would be the first thing that you'd found out about sexuality in general, and about, well, psychology of relationships. Then your views of the world could get a bit twisted. And the fact that it was given to all the newlyweds in the Soviet Union as a gift, and, you know, you were supposed to read them, and the fact that the book basically, by examples, state that if you happen to be into someone as a guy... Who's a bit older than you, then hey, hey, you can do that, but be super careful. Yeah. Also, it actively encourages to be serious about a relationship, and all that wedding stuff, but at the same time, it sort of encourages to get married as soon as you basically hit 23 or 25. It's for extremely young marriages, at least by European standards. Also, one of the weirdest things about the book that uh, really shocked me that the author writes there, and I do not really know why, Is that you shall only be happy and will have a happy marriage with your first love. And ruining someone's first love, after being a silly teenager, that if you marry someone later on, then that relationship shall just pass and be terrible and bad. That kind of uh, influences the whole idea about trying to make sure that you actually build a happy marriage with their first relationship. And this is tied into uh, the whole Soviet idea of the military. They have this saying in Russia, or uh, the women shall, shall give birth to new ones. Why? Well, because you obviously should marry people while in the young age, so that you can produce many, many, many kids, which can then be conscripted into army 18 years later, and can be used to fight capitalism. Why not? That's normal. That's normal for Soviet era what people actually might feel, and at what point, and the fact that, you know, they're individuals, oh, no, 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 you only have to be individual, and, you know, let yourself go, if you are within these norms, and if you're not, if you're like me in this case, by the way, I'm having a girlfriend who's a bit older than me, she's 33, and uh, apparently that's, that's not normal, too, but, I would really, really be interested to find out if anyone really could affirm to this very socialist, communist, instructional sex, you know. Because only the Soviet Union could probably such a book be made that makes sex kind of clinical. Sure, emotions exist, but they're all pushing this agenda that the normalcy takes hand before all this and that, you know, you must always have sex in a certain way and be in this certain relationship and do all these certain things. Because then you will, you know, adhere to statistics and uh, be welcomed by the Soviet authorities. kind of makes you think, you know. makes you wonder about in the philosophy in general, Western philosophy, and like psychoanalysis, uh, starting with Freud, sexuality has been an important driving force in human minds. And when the government starts trying to take control of that, then you know that some things might be going wrong. Like I said, the episode took an unexpected turn, but I hope you enjoyed it. Next time we're gonna have Stalin, we're gonna have a Christmas special. It's gonna be fun. Also don't forget to check out other Dark Myths podcasts. And please, please join our Patreon, it's there, are our patrons, visit our webpage, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and of course join our Discord chat. We have conversations with people there all the time and I'll post pictures on all these links about this book and everything. But yeah, hope this made you think. Thank you for
0: listening to the Eastern Border. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one.
1: The darkness awaits.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.